0: Mac Power Users, Mac Power Users Live, episode 277 for September 5th, 2015. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. Hello, Katie. How are you today?
1: Hey, David, I'm great. How are you?
0: Excellent. I'm ready for a ni- another exciting live episode of Mac Power Users. I always like this episode. We have so much great feedback from the listeners this month on all the stuff we've covered and uh, some really great uh, listener submissions as well I want to talk about. But before- Yeah,
1: it was a really active active month for listener submissions. I, I love that. I-, I hope that continues. That trend continues.
0: Yes, and but before we do that, I want to bring on a friend of the show, Victor Cahiel. Welcome to the show, Victor.
2: Hey David, thanks for having me on.
0: Oh man, it's my pleasure. If anyone doesn't know Victor, you should. Victor uh, used to run the typical Mac user podcast years ago. Um uh he was really one of the pioneers in the kind of the Mac podcasting realm in my opinion. And um and you took some time off cuz you were dealing with work and health and other things. And then you're retired and you're back on the scene. And we're all so happy and fortunate to have you back, Victor. So um, uh, first of all, I want to tell everybody they need to go out and check out Victor's new podcast called Terra Tech. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But the real reason I wanted to have Victor here, because Victor is and he and he will he doesn't like it when I say this, but he's an audio wizard. He's really great with with dealing with audio stuff. And this is something that um, we need to cover. Uh, for our listeners i mean uh, victor 's uh, one of the best uh, podcast audio editors i've i 've dealt with he 's a musician he does musical recordings and all this stuff but but the reason I really wanted Victor on here is because um, I, I think that um, a lot of Power users, even people who don't do podcasts, should have a little bit of knowledge about how to make good audio recordings with their Mac and their iOS gear. And I can tell you in my experience that the, I really I really like I blew it on both ends. My kids were little, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and I didn't ever bother to record their voices. And now they're, you know, they're snarky teenagers and I really wish I had recorded them. And I did the exact same thing with my mom. You know, she had all these great stories about growing up in Massachusetts and all the thing, you know, living through the depression and all these great stories she used to tell me. And I kept telling myself, I'm going to record it one of these days. And then she got sick and passed away without me ever getting that done. And I just felt like archival recordings are something people should know about. And just in general, making good audio. So with that long introduction, Victor, um, I'd like you to help our audience get better at making audio recording.
2: Sure. I'd love to do that. And I think that uh, doing archival recording of our kids, our parents, um, you know, that tradition of um, audio history is really important. And it's something that we have on our hands, in our hands and are able to do so easily, but sometimes don't take the time to do it. So I think it's great that you're doing this and uh, hopefully some folks can get some tips and hints from me.
0: Yeah. and, and- yeah. Go ahead, Kay.
1: Well, and I think we want to talk about you know, a lot of people ask us about how do I get started in podcasting? How do I get started with audio? And, you know, certainly it can be an expensive hobby, as, as you probably well know, Victor, uh, and David and I certainly well know, but it doesn't have to be, you know, you can, for just a, a relatively small investment, you can really up your game instead of just using the built in microphone on your Mac. Uh, and then depending on, you know, what you're doing, and, and how much of a hobby this becomes, and how dedicated and invested you get on this, you can really then step it up from there.
2: I don't know if you guys want to start with the Mac side or with the iOS side whatever whatever you want I definitely have some suggestions that'll get you up and running for not a lot of money because thank goodness Apple's included some software with our Macs that enables us to do this pretty easily
0: yeah and well before-
1: I was going to say maybe let's let's start with the iOS side because I think is that maybe the simpler side at least now
2: I think it is. I think the iOS side definitely is a a very simple side. We have iPhones, we have iPod touches, we have iPads. And, uh, you know, we can record in those devices, even with the built-in mic, to a decent level, uh, most definitely. But then we can take it up a notch with very little investment. So let me talk about hardware first, as far as a microphone. Obviously, we know we want to get recorded voice into a device. We need a decent mic. So why not have one of these lavalier mics the clip-ons that you see on TV? I want to recommend one called Audio-Technica ATR-3350IS. So it's only $21 and it comes with an adapter that you can plug right into your iOS device. It's like a breakout cable that lets you monitor your voice at the same time that you're recording it. That investment alone for $21 and even the built-in memo app that we have with all of our ios devices will get you a long ways so that's a great way to start let me know if you have any questions about that i do otherwise i can okay go ahead
0: i do so first um you said it has monitoring a lot of people are going to be out there scratching their head what do you mean by monitoring
2: sure one of the things we like to do when we record our own voice is be able to listen to it back in real time as we're recording so What I mean by monitoring in this case is the cable lets you plug in both this little lavalier clip-on mic and your headphones at the same time. Then if your iOS software supports that monitoring, some do, some don't, you'll be able to actually hear your own voice back as you're doing the recording if you choose to do that.
0: Yeah. And also, what's the interface? Does it plug into the headphone jack or does it plug into the lightning port?
2: This one plugs in uh, to the headphone jack.
0: Okay. And just and you said that's like about 21 bucks.
2: Yep, believe it or not, it's 21 bucks. I use the same microphone when I'm recording uh audio for video. We can talk about that later. It's a great little investment for this price. It's battery powered. It is a stereo microphone. So it's going to give you a little bit of room noise, but not too bad. And if you put that, you know, somewhere in the middle of your chest, clipped onto your shirt or the shirt of somebody who you're recording, you're going to get some pretty good results with that.
1: In fact, when people talk to us about, hey, how can I send in an audio clip for the podcast easily? And and we'll hear several of those in this episode. That's typically the first thing that I send them. And as I say, you know, the, the voice recorder app on, on iOS is, is really easy. You know, just get into a quiet room, um, record with that voice recorder app, and then it's really easy just to email out. And, and in that case, by the way, if you're interested, you send that email to feedback at macpowerusers.com. And boom, we get it and we can drop it in to this feedback show. Uh, and if they want to up their game anymore, they can add this lavalier mic like you're talking about.
0: Hey, let's let's run off to the side a little bit about the relationship between audio and video, because some people listening are going to say, well, I like Dave's idea about you know archiving my kids or my parents, but I'm just going to shoot a video of them. And I would argue that if you're going to do that, you still need to have good audio, because if you shoot video, if you hold your phone across the room and shoot video of your parents. Uh, the audio is going to be horrible and with a little bit of work you can make it better for instance this is a perfect example Um, you could clip this lavalier mic onto them and you could still have the camera across how long is the cord on the uh, audio technica victor it's really long i think it's over 10 feet so exactly so you could you could clip it to them and have the, the device six feet away shooting great video but at the same time getting really good audio too
2: You can. And what's neat about this particular mic is that even though it comes with the iOS adapter, it also has just a traditional, I think it's eighth inch adapter, which will go into most of your video camcorder type cameras. Like I have a Canon. So I just shot a project for a friend of mine's volunteer organization. And this is exactly what we did. We took the audio and recorded that on the iPhone while at the same time recording the video which will have its own audio but it'll be a lot more roomier sounding and not as good so then you can take both of those clips bring them into a video editor and line the audio up to get just pristine audio you then turn down the audio on your video and you're left with good audio and good video and there's nothing worse than great video with fat audio. It just
0: doesn't work. Yeah, it's funny. My, my daughter is active kind of in the video community. She's a lot more when she's in high school than she is in college. But some of her friends have gone on to film school. And I was recently involved in a very peripheral way with one of their shoots. And one of the things these kids did, and these are, are smart kids. I mean, they're working in the industry, uh, several of them already, um, is they when we did this shoot, the first thing they did is they got all the iPhones in the room and they were putting the iPhones. You know, they're hiding them on the set, basically, and running audio recording of the iPhones. And they were they were miking a few people. And some of them, they just had the built in iPhone mic and they collected all that audio. And then later they went in and put that in. They took out the audio that the cameras were shooting. And um, it just gives you an idea of how good the, the audio you can do with an iOS device is that they're using it in these kind of nearly motion picture quality uh, video recordings.
1: Yeah, it's a
2: great way to do it. And uh, I highly recommend it.
1: Cool. Let's switch over to the Mac side a little bit, because I think a lot of people, if they're doing spoken word, if they're doing maybe family history type things, um, if they're maybe recording um, just something more for their personal use, or maybe if they want to get into podcast recording, uh, they're probably going to be sitting down at a Mac, although certainly that is something you can do now on on iOS. But most people start that up on a Mac. Can you kind of walk us through the steps of, if I want to start with a basic setup and then maybe step it up from there, um, on a on an intermediate than a more advanced setup for how do I get really great quality out of my Mac, both on the hardware and software. In
2: Great. OK, so let's start with um, one of the darling microphones of the podcast community right now, if you follow that community. It's not a mic that I personally have tried, but many have and really stand by it. It's the Audio Technica again, ATR 2100 USB slash XLR so this is a mic that you can plug in either directly to your USB port it's only $40 at Amazon right now it's on special by the way and it'll give you great sound quality without even having to have an audio card you can just go directly out of USB and you're done if you so choose to step it up and you have a board later. It has that XLR jack, which is just a cable that is the traditional interface between a microphone and a mixer. So that's a great all-in-one, not very expensive solution to use. You combine that with something like GarageBand and you know, you've know you got the basics for a pretty good audio recording setup.
1: Yeah, David, I think this is similar to the Rode mic that you use. I think you use the at um, 2005 but I think it's it's similar to this one.
0: Yeah, it's funny cuz as you say that I'm madly looking put, yanking out my travel mic and looking at it for the um the model number and it's not on here. Oh wait, it is but I can't read it. Okay. <laughs> I'm on. I'm
1: pretty sure you have the AT2005 cuz I I've, I've got that in my list as well.
0: Magnifying glass. I have the AT2005 USB. Katie Floyd, you're so smart. There you go, Katie. Anyway, um, this is a great but little
2: similar
0: mic, type for of mic, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: so from there we can step it up and we can talk about kind of what the next level would be as far as I'm concerned. Great. Great. So from there I would go to a, a better microphone, something more to, true and tried, like the Shure SM58. It's a mic that I've been using since the late 70s early 80s it's a workhorse it's a tank it'll take it it's 91 dollars again you buy that you buy an xlr cable a desk mic stand and then you're going to need something to interface it with your mac how do you get it into your mac so what i recommend here is a sure x2u which is an xlr to usb adapter it's 99 dollars It has some very good features, a good preamp, so you get nice, solid sound with good level going into your mic. In addition, it's got a built-in headphone jack so that you can monitor, to use that word again, at the same time you're recording, you can monitor that audio that you're recording without any delay. What happens when you introduce an interface between a microphone and a Mac sometimes is you'll get just the slightest delay and anything over about 500 milliseconds our ear just doesn't know how to deal with by having this headphone jack you avoid that so there we have about 200 um Desk stand is going to cost you about 18 dollars for something like the onstage ds 300b and then a mic cord about 20 bucks so for 240 dollars you've got all the hardware that you're going to need for a pretty long time as far as I'm concerned. And again, you can use GarageBand as the way that you record your audio out of your Mac. I know that it's lost some of its podcasting features, but none of those are ones that you can't really replicate with just a little more effort and manual manipulation of files within GarageBand.
0: Yeah. And something I'd add when you're going to do one of these, like if you're going to have a mic on your desk um, you will get noise because the, the noise will translate. So when you you tap on the desk or the keyboard or the mouse, even sometimes you'll hear that through the machine. Um, that's why a lot of people get those boom mics. That's what Katie and I, and I'm presuming Victor uses, but um, a, a cheat for that, like when I'm on the road and I've got this little desk mic um, is I just get a towel and put it underneath it. And a lot of times that removes a lot of that noise.
2: Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, From something like GarageBand, I use and record all the time with Audio Hijack 3. It's $50 from Rogamima. They've been around forever. What this does is not only let you record your voice, but also capture audio from just about anywhere on your Mac. Any application, any web page the possibilities are endless uh, as far as this is concerned and you can control the quality of the audio file that you get whether it's going to be compressed like mp3 or whether it's going to be lossless like wav files or aiff and this starts becoming a little more important if you're doing things like trading files with others or putting up podcasts. You want to record as lossless as you can. So when you're editing, you have as much possibility as possible to fix the audio.
0: So, Victor, when you're getting into this, where do you get the most bang for your buck if someone's just sitting there at home and wants to get a little better at their audio recording?
2: Well, for the listener there, I got to go with the iOS family of recording. I mean, it's going to give you what you need at a very good quality if you use that lavalier mic. So, to me, you can just use that if you even want a podcast from that on an iOS device. You can use something like a software called Boss Jack Studio for $99, nine ninety nine, And um, you can actually put audio clips, songs, and produce your entire podcast in your iOS device and send it off to uh, one of the services or as a file to yourself. So that's where you're going to get the best bang for your buck, I think.
0: And then in terms of the um, the improvement you talked about, you know, kind of going from the small investment to the more intermediate setup, um, where do you hear? I mean, what improves for that increased investment?
2: So I think that you're not going to see a huge improvement if you're looking, for example, at a microphone between the 50 or the hundred dollar range. You're not going to see a lot. Where you are going to see marked improvement is when you go to the next level of microphone. And I'm talking about microphones because to me, that is kind of where it starts. It gives you a signature sound. So when you get into the more top level mics like the Heil PR40s or high end mic like the Electro Voice RE20, which I use. These are proven microphones that have been used in the radio industry for a very long time. They do have some unique features. Some people like them. Some people don't. But there, you're looking at $300 to $400 microphones, and I think you see a marked improvement in those. The second area would be in your audio interfaces. When you start getting into audio interfaces that are better, they give you better quality of sound because the preamps are cleaner, less noise introduced into the signal itself. And Apogee, for example, makes some great uh, devices for single users or multiple users in that space. Uh,
1: Victor, maybe we should talk a little bit about software setup. I know you talked about GarageBand. It's, Mm -hmm. It's fairly easy. It's built in with most Macs. But I know you use Logic. And so... When when is GarageBand appropriate? I think it's probably a good starting place for most people since it's built into their computers and it's it's free with with all new Macs. Um, What is GarageBand good for? And then when should people maybe be taking a look at stepping up to something different?
2: Okay, so, yes, I do use Logic to, to record. Mostly music. I use Adobe Audition actually to record podcasting and do editing for podcasting. So I think the right time is when you start getting into a show. Let's say you're going to do a podcast with one other person or more, like you guys are doing. Now you're going to have separate pieces of audio that are going to be recorded locally. For example, my audio today, I will send to Katie and Dave when I'm done so they can process the best quality, not just rely on Skype so there you're going to be dropping multiple pieces of audio let's say three people into something like logic pro x or audition and you're going to get a lot more robust features you're going to get plugins which allow you to do audio manipulation like equalization compression um dropping off certain bands that create noise so you're going to get a lot more rich set of tools when you move up to these more professional level editors like Logic or Audition.
1: Awesome. And so are what exactly do you use Logic for versus Audition for? Do you use them for different things?
2: Myself, I do. I have a Logic setup where I can record my own voice and do some pre-processing on that. So it, It adds a compression as soon as I'm doing it. It adds a little bit of gain to make sure that I have the right level. So that's one way. But the way I use audition is multi-track recording of musicians, people who are either playing um, live and I've gone and recorded them or they're coming into my house and we're actually doing guitars and drums and bass and those type of things. I've even done orchestral things there the possibilities are endless i've done 64 tracks uh orchestral movements and uh the tools and the synthesizers and instruments that are built into something like logic for the price pretty powerful stuff
1: so if you had to give some people some some tips for getting started um you know what what would you say to them i mean if someone wants to get started with this uh, what should they do where should they go I mean, what are kind of the big do's and don'ts here?
2: Sure. So uh, the mistakes I see, if you're going to think about podcasting, for example, is first, don't think you're going to make a bunch of money in podcasting. That just is not been my experience. So I would caution you against that. Um, The other thing, again, if we're focusing on podcasting, don't fall into the many so-called experts out there that are charging you money to give you seminars on what gear to buy. Um, most of them are really giving you advice that's boilerplate or available in things like G groups and use the community. You're, you're listening to this podcast, you know, at least two podcasters. This community is pretty close knit and they're happy to give you advice. So those are kind of some of the mistakes that I see doing that. In recording itself, I'm going to keep it real simple. First of all, you have to learn really good mic technique. Don't get too close. Uh, don't you have to learn your microphone sweet spot. Every mic has them. And a lot of people will tend to get too close to the mic and do the popping keys. And they're called plosives because they're not they're sometimes looking at their mic directly. What I do is I'm a little bit off axis. I'm looking kind of at a 45-degree angle across the microphone, and that prevents some of that. So learn your mic well so that you can, you know, practice. Um, Next, of course, is watch your recording levels. Red is bad. We don't want to clip audio at all in the digital world because there's really no way to fix it. So watch that. Lastly, you have to learn how to get a suitable recording level that's going to result in an audio that's easy to listen to wherever you're at including a moving car. A lot of us listen to podcasts in moving cars. You can look up information. There are standards that have been set up out there to let you know what levels your recording should be at if you're doing podcasting. But even if you're doing archival recording, you know how to record to get the best uh, quality of sound.
0: One of the questions in the chat room is what's a good way to get rid of the sound of the ambient air or the background noise um, in a recording?
2: Turn off your air conditioner when you're recording. That's the first way to do it. Yep. (laughs) Turn off your hard drive when you're recording. Uh, You know, these are things, again, more for podcasters. If you're doing uh, archival recording of family members, get into a room that has a lot of natural padding curtains, sofas, you know, anything that's going to dampen that sound is going to make it be better. You know, don't record in wide open spaces with a lot of uh, reflecting walls and stuff. So that's a way to avoid that kind of thing. But the best way to get rid of noise is not to have it there in the first place. If you do introduce noise, there are really good pieces of software. I'm going to recommend one called a phonics, which will let you get rid of noise with a very good algorithm for a very reasonable price. Again, this is much more for the intermediate to advanced level. I would not do that if you're doing just archival family recording.
1: And give us that software name one more time. It's called
2: Afonic. They're a company based out of Britain, and they help you both in getting rid of noise and also leveling your audio to those standards that I was talking about. Getting into them is beyond the scope here. But if you go to their website... You know, they'll explain it in real, real world ways. And they have some great examples of before and after recordings. It's $80. You can either use them as a service or actually download software and do
1: the batch processing yourself.
0: And that's A-U-P-H-O-N-I-C
1: yeah that's we'll, correct we'll throw a link to that as as well in the show notes and the thing that I can you know just throw in to emphasize that and I say this ironically is the lawnmower brigade is starting up outside in my neighborhood uh, is it's a lot of it's trial and error and you've got to go back and listen to your recordings you know once once we finish recording a podcast you can't just walk away and say okay I've recorded that i'm I'm done I go back and listen to I will admit not all but many of the mac power user episodes I listen to them in the car I listen to to them as i'm getting ready for work in the morning i listen to them through iphone headphones while i'm at the gym not because i necessarily want to hear myself again but because i think it's important to listen to them in different places and sometimes i cringe like oh did i did i say that did i stutter did i say um so many times or what was what was the uh, gosh, I'm, I noticed myself doing it right now. Why did I trip over that? Why was there that noise there? And by only going back and listening to it over and over again, do you do you hear those things? You can't just send it off in a vacuum and say, OK, we're done.
2: No, that's right. And listening to your recording in multiple sources like headphones, cheap speakers in the car, really important stuff. And uh, it's really worth the effort to do that.
0: All right, Victor. Um, one final go question. Go ahead, David. I mean, Victor, sure. you're you're also a super geek, and that's why we love you. Um, we talked about audio, but give us one mm-hmm. app before you leave. Doesn't have to be sure. audio related.
1: Just something okay. you're playing
2: with right now. I'm I'm going to show you one. It's called uh, Find Any File. I think I picked this up, David, on a bundle that you had on your website, and it came along for the ride. But even if it's not, it's only six dollars, and uh, oftentimes. I store files everywhere. I'm just a pack rat and I archive everything. So this is an application that has a simple UI, but lets you get in pretty deep. I had to find a, a file that was encrypted that I couldn't find for a couple of years. And this application found it like day one. So it's um, made by Thomas Templeman. And uh, for six bucks, you can't go wrong.
0: Yeah, and, and like if you've got a Drobo or a bunch of external drives, this this will help you with that too. Big time. Yeah.
1: Well, Victor, tell us a little bit about the Tech podcast, what you do, uh, when you broadcast and where people can find you.
2: Yeah, wonderful. Terratech is T-E-R-R-A-T-E-C-H and that's Terratech dot tech. And it's a show about all things tech geek. So I'm going to cover things from science to next this middle of this month. I'm doing a barbecue show where a guy I follow on Twitter makes me drool every Friday, Saturday and Sunday cooking. So I'm simply going to do a show about grilling, barbecuing, meat preparation, meat selection. So that's a very typical example. From there, we can go to cameras, video, audio, you name it in science or tech. I'm going to cover it either with someone or by myself through audio
1: or screencast. So it's just kind of a lifestyle show for geeks, things that all kinds of things that geeks might be interested in. Yeah, and sometimes we'll get deeper in the weeds than other times. Awesome. All right, Victor. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, We'll have links to everything that you talked about, including all of the software and hardware that you discussed. And of course, links to your podcast and you in our show notes, uh, which people can find over at relay.fm slash MPU slash 227 for this episode. Uh, Victor is one of the nicest guys in podcasting. He was a big help to both David and I as we were getting started. And it is our pleasure to have you on the show and really happy to have you back in the podcasting community as well.
2: No, it's been my pleasure, you guys, and and keep doing what you do. It's so important and you do it so well. Thank you. Thanks,
1: Victor. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to come back and we've got a ton of listener questions for you. Uh, but before we do, David, why don't you tell us about our first sponsor this episode?
0: Yes. Yes. Katie Floyd, this episode is brought to you by the folks at sparkle. Sparkle is a cool app that lets you build great looking website templates on your Mac. If you're the kind of person that wants to host a website yourself, you can always choose a generic theme that your hosting provider will provide you, or you can hire a designer, which can get really expensive. Uh, Or you could do something like buy Sparkle and Sparkle will help you do this because it's it's just a lot more cost effective. So uh, your website is an extension of your identity. It's the face of the Internet. So people will visit your website. They see what you choose and show them. Uh, You need a tool that can help you build that without having to know how to code yourself because you know a lot of us don't want to spend the time to do that Um, there used to be a program on the mac called iweb that apple made and it was like if you could use word or pages or keynote you could make a you could make a website well sparkles like they took the idea of iweb and they you know they they put it on steroids they made it much better and that's what sparkle is it's an expensive mac app that lets you build a unique design without depending on anybody and it produces standards compliant websites that works in all the modern browsers um, they've got a website over at sparklecafe.com that shows you some uh, some really nice designs that people have done with their software And the tools are completely freeform, so you're not locked into anything. You can make the website you want to make. And uh, and like I said, anything you would expect in a modern web browser can work here. So you can take a look at Sparkle by going to sparkle.cx S-P-A-R-K-L-E. C X. Sparkle's users say that it's the website builder they have been waiting for for 10 years. And for Mac Power users listeners, you can get 15% off by using the coupon code Mac Power Users. There's no spaces there. That's just one long word Mac Power Users at checkout. So thank you so much for uh, to Sparkle for supporting the show. And once again, go check them out at sparkle.cx.
1: So, I think we'll start off today with just some listener questions, and one for you, David. Is you have mentioned a couple of times this awesome Brother multifunction printer that you've had, or I guess it's a color laser printer that you have, and we've had a you. You never told us what it was, so. David, what printer do you have that you love so much?
0: I I don't, first of all, I don't think I've ever used the word awesome in connection with a printer in a long time. (laughs) But but when I went out and started my business, I decided I needed a color laser printer. That was one of my expenses. So I I bought, I'd been buying HPs for a long time and uh, I had one of the original um, HP inkjet printers like over 20 years ago, at least it looked like a building designed by frank lloyd wright and the thing ran for like six years and just was just a great printer it, that was you know as we were coming out of the dot matrix age so i was very loyal to hp for a long time but i would noticed over the last few, few years i'd bought uh, a few hp printers and they were just giving me nothing but trouble so i bought this brother and it's the hll 8350 cdw don't you love those names
1: and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. By yeah, the way.
0: we will. So It's a color laser printer and it works great. And I've been very happy with it. The only thing, uh, my only complaint is that it occasionally drops the Wi-Fi. You know, it's a Wi-Fi printer. So I can print from uh, any iOS device or my Mac's you know, walking around the house. Um, occasionally, it just drops off the Wi-Fi and I have to go repair it, uh, which takes a minute because it's not a very good interface. I mean, you have to, it's one of those things where you have four buttons, but you have to type in a password. So you have to hold it down and, you know, you know, just manually move it up. Uh, but uh, overall, it's been it does a good job printing. It, it's uh, pretty stingy about ink. It doesn't use up as much ink as I expected it to. And um, it's it's overall I would give it a recommendation. So uh, once again, HLL three five zero CDW.
1: All right. Uh, Brett wrote in with a question about 1Password and two-factor authentication. He says, I'm hearing you preach the gospel about 1Password, and I see the utility of it, but here's what I don't get. With all of the two-factor authentication options out there, why doesn't 1Password have two-factor authentication? I use it everywhere else with Google, Apple, Evernote, Microsoft, but I just can't bring myself to store all of my passwords in one place with a vendor that doesn't have two-factor authentication available." what happens if 1Password gets hacked or someone gets a hold of my 1Password master password? So I I think that's a valid question, but I think the question kind of indicates that there might be some confusion about the way that 1Password works. And obviously, full disclosure, 1Password is a sponsor of the show. But 1Password doesn't actually store all of your passwords in 1Password server or with the 1Password people. Um, That's one of the beauties about 1Password is you keep all of your passwords in the 1Password application, but then you keep and you control that data file. So that data file is wherever you choose to put it. 1Password just makes the software application that you store this information in. So I guess I would first ask, how are you currently storing your passwords and where are those data files and how secure is that option? Um, but what 1Password does is they have uh, very strong encryption. And I've put a link in the show notes that kind of talks about the type of encryption they use and it addresses that because candidly, it, it's too complicated for me to explain on this podcast, and I'm not entirely sure that I understand it, Um, but they then encrypt that data file. Um, So someone would actually have to get physical access to your 1Password data file um, and then break into it. And, And you can read more information in the post that I link about how difficult that is to do. So if someone actually hacked 1Password, the people... They don't really have your information, um, so you wouldn't lose your information. Now, if someone physically got a hold of your 1Password data file, then they would have to crack the encryption. And so then it kind of becomes a question of, number one, how strong is your 1Password master password? Are they likely to guess it through some kind of brute force attack? Uh, And then, number two, how likely it is that they're actually going to be able to get a hold of it. I actually keep my 1Password data file on a keychain that I carry around with me because I feel pretty strong about the encryption. Um, depending on where you keep it, you may keep it on a computer that's secured by a password. You may keep it on an iPhone that's secured by a password. So that's kind of already is two factors of authentication. Um, Or you may choose to sync it with a service like iCloud or Dropbox, which also offers their own two-factor authentication. So um, I think that's perhaps a little bit better clarification and explanation about how two-factor authentication works with 1Password, because they don't provide it, but I don't think they really can because they're not storing anything. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, but but I would add to that, you know, you do need to have a good, you know, master password for 1Password. And they have posts on that as well over at Agile um, explaining how to come up with a good one. And it needs to change once in a while. And it needs to be more than, you know, five or six characters because there is a lot of really important data stored in there. Um, uh, Henrik wrote in about upload limits for photos. He says there should be a Wi-Fi only mode for photo iCloud library and iOS at least. And he says he traveled through Europe and burned through his data limit within a day because of the automatic photo upload to iCloud. Um, I, I went, cause I didn't have that experience. Like we go to um, Disneyland quite often with our family and, and we'll take pictures and those pictures will never go up to iCloud for me. I, I always note that I don't get to see them in my library until I get home and I'm on Wi-Fi. And I need to write Henrik back to find out if we can do some troubleshooting. Uh, but the I looked it up and there's an Apple support article on this and we'll put the link in the in the show notes. But the question is, when do photos and video upload to iCloud photo library? And according to Apple, it is when you turn on iCloud photo library and your iOS device and your Mac, the photos and videos will upload after you connect to Internet with Wi-Fi and your battery is charged. So it looks like there's two conditions before that upload will start because they don't want to kill your battery and they don't want to run, burn through your data. And, um, and he says, you can see the status or pause for one day when you follow the steps in settings slash iCloud slash photos or um, photos slash preferences slash iCloud. I guess in Henrik's case, I, if something was going on there, I'm wondering if maybe he had a, a pairing, like he, you know, sometimes I, I go out and find that I'll pair my iPad to my it just happened to me yesterday. I paired my iPad to my MacBook because I was doing some work remotely. And then later I looked down at my iPhone and it was paired also to the iPad. It had at some point I had paired it in the past, so it automatically jumped on there. So then it would have been uploading um through my data plan because it was thinking it was on Wi-Fi. Um so th- that's that's a little bit of a head scratcher because that shouldn't happen but uh do keep an eye on that if you're out on vacation taking a lot of pictures make sure that you're not using up your data. Um Yeah,
1: I think by by default it shouldn't upload from iOS over yeah. Wi-Fi. and That can definitely be adjusted in the cellular settings. Um one thing is that if you're worried about it uploading be, perhaps, you know, from your Mac, um Try Trip Mode. Trip Mode is a great app that we've talked about before. That if you've got your Mac and perhaps you're tethering from your Mac to your iPhone or your iPad because you're traveling, and that could be perhaps how this happened. Because when you're tethering from your Mac to an iOS device, keep in mind even though you're tethering and even though you're on a on a data plan, a cellular data plan, you're, as David said, your Mac thinks that it's on wireless. Um, so there's a great app called Trip Mode, and I put a link to that in the show notes that you can turn off all of the services that use uh, data, including iCloud, and then have to turn on one by one the services that you specifically want to allow to connect to the internet, for example, a web browser or email, so that you don't accidentally, you know, go through a large chunk of data and only specifically allow those services that you want to use.
3: All right, uh, next we have an audio comment. Hi, Katie. Hi, David. Cheers for the wonderful podcast you're producing on this regular basis. Fantastic. I have a question regarding the new 12-inch MacBook of the look and feel of this gadget. I'm not worried about using the thing, writing, surfing, or listening to music. I guess skipping through photos should be okay. My problem, I guess, will be the size of the SSD. Currently, I have a one terabyte Samsung uh, SSD in a 2010 15-inch MacBook Pro. But I want a lighter computer. I went through all my data using what is? The user count has some 520 gigabytes. I have a pretty large photo library of some 300 gigabytes. Next is music with 80 gigabytes. Documents with 50 and library 70. I have a Mac Mini at home as well for videos. Do you see any chance to shrink or magically change the data to be able to go back to 512 gigabyte or wait for an Apple update? Or do you see any other alternative? Thanks again for your inspiration. Bye for now, Torsten. I, I,
1: so this is the classic question of, I I really want a laptop computer with a, a fast SSD, but right now the SSDs are topping off at about 512 in the small laptops, but my data is bigger than 512 gigabytes.
0: Yeah, what so what do? are you going to do? Yeah, the, it's there's not an easy answer to it. Um, it, If you really want all your data on your machine, then you're going to have to wait. Um, they're going to come out with a new MacBook at some point. At, at some day in the, the future, maybe this year, maybe next year, um, they're going to have one with a one terabyte drive. But right now, the biggest you can get is 512. So then you start thinking, well, can I take stuff off? Uh, like, photo library is a good example. In my case, I, since I have two Macs, I'm fortunate I have my iMac at home that has local copies of all my photos. But for my little MacBook, I just have it, you know, with the cloud versions of the pictures where there's, you know, they aren't as high and they don't download all the photos. That means it uses a lot less space. Same thing with like with my iTunes library. I don't keep all my videos on my laptop. I mean, I, I own a lot of videos I've bought through iTunes over the years. And once I've ripped, I don't keep them on there. So it's it's totally manageable for me but I'm giving up some of the data. The other option you could have is you could carry around a little portable drive with some of that extra data on it. But then all of a sudden, you know, that little sexy MacBook doesn't feel sexy because you got to carry extra baggage with it. So, uh, you know, you just have to choose your poison.
1: Yeah, I think that, that the... Go ahead. There you go. I, I think that the little MacBook is really going to be a secondary computer, especially if storage space is a concern. But you do have that Mac mini at home. If you can transition some of this stuff to the Mac mini for more permanent or storage, specifically, it looks like the big ticket items, the really big ticket item for you is your iPhoto or your photo library, because I think you said that that's 300 gigabytes right there. If you can live without your photo library on your MacBook, that's going to do most of it for you. If you can put your iTunes library primarily on your Mac mini at home. That's gonna get you that's gonna that's gonna solve your problem. And then just carry around, you know, perhaps use iTunes Match and just carry around a couple of playlists and just carry around optimized copies of your videos on that library. But I don't know. It depends on if you always need access to those photos on your on your MacBook or not. Um, you may want to consider up uh, upgrading the hard drive in your Home Mac Mini. You may want to consider um, getting some kind of network attached storage and storing those libraries on that network attached storage. Although that sometimes poses some hassles as well. Uh, but in in terms of shrinking it, you know, there used to be those programs like Data Doubler or Disk Doubler, whatever it was called, and zipping things up. That that's just not really an option. Yeah, uh, so you're, I, you're just gonna have a, to. It's, no, it's not even a thing anymore. Yeah, but I don't think you're, that exists you're, anymore. Yeah, I was just throwing that in there for the people who remember it. Uh, but you're just you're just going to have to to decide what do, what can you live without on that MacBook.
0: Well, and, and, and until on, the size is increased and on the photos library, you know, it, it, we did a whole show on this. I did a screencast on it. The the new iCloud photos is I mean, it's largely working. I know I'm going to get some emails from people that don't like it and have had trouble, but I've got a lot of emails from people that love it. And the um, if you're willing to pay for iCloud storage. With that massive photos library, you still will see all your photos on your MacBook. They just won't be all downloaded and it'll download, you know, the individual photos as you need them. So
1: that's uh, going to be an expensive storage plan, I would imagine, for 300 gigabytes. Yeah, what well, is 300 gigabytes? Look at of, the, the pricing.
0: But yeah, I think and, it, I'll look it up at some point during the show. But I think that's in, is that in the seven dollar tier or something? I don't, I don't remember. I know that a terabyte, of memory serves, is ten dollars. Or maybe, you know what, maybe it's 20. I forget Apple. You know, I'm confusing Apple and um, Dropbox pricing. But either way, yeah, if you're willing to pay for it, you can can have it on it that way as well. Uh, Either way, uh, I I do like my MacBook, but it is a second Mac. It's not a primary Mac for the the kind of stuff I do. Um, If I didn't do screencasting and write books and stuff, I almost could probably get away with it as my only Mac
1: yeah um two hundred gigabytes is going to be three ninety nine a month which that's not going to work for him five hundred gigabytes is the next tier up is going to be nine ninety nine a month yeah and one terabyte is nineteen ninety nine a month now those are u s prices um it sounds like he may not be in the u s so those those prices are going to get adjusted a little bit depending. Um, on on where you're located. For example, in the in the UKing, uh, in the United Kingdom, 500 gigabytes is seven pounds, um, and a terabyte is 15 pounds
0: okay um we also heard from daniel and he wanted to talk about syncing the itunes library he says i'm looking into buying my next mac however i want to be able to share my itunes library uh, comprising of music tvs and music uh movies and since my library is over 500 gigabyte online options is, is not an option as for files i only use dropbox for everything so there's no problem there um uh, and he wanted to see if there is software that can sync certain folders such as music podcasts. He says he still uses iTunes for podcasts and also sync iTunes music library stuff and um i i 'm guessing that he means syncing it from the old Mac to the new Mac or um, I think
1: just between Macs that he uses yeah. he uses current you know multiple macs
0: yeah um so so the, I still think the best software for syncing files uh between two macs. Uh, you know, for getting the cloud for a minute is ChronoSync. Um, I still use it on a regular basis. Um, it, they've got a good licensing program. I, it's like, I think you get free lifetime upgrades, but don't quote me on that because I paid for it years ago and they keep keep upgrading and I keep getting it. And the um, it's just a really great application. And what it does is it looks at two different places. It could be two different Macs or two different drives and it, it synchronizes files between them. Or it can do like kind of an archive. I do that with my um. I have a ChronoSync um, script that I run on my Drobo where I've got an extra like a, a slow USB drive that I attach to the computer with the Drobo on it every once in a while. And it backs up the Drobo in essence. Uh, what do you think, Katie?
1: Well, I think one obvious option that we're overlooking here is iTunes Match.
0: Yeah, but iTunes Match doesn't handle his movies and his TV
1: no, no, it won't. Um, if you did want to pay, and I think he mentioned that he had a Dropbox account, um, that Dropbox, I believe, will do a pretty good job of, of syncing iTunes. The problem is, is that if you have both open simultaneously and they're both trying to open or, or write to the iTunes data file, that could be a problem. So you may want to be aware of that. ChronoSync is great for um, syncing files, but you're going to want to do that over your local network and you're going to have to, you can set that to automate. So you may want to set it to automatically do it every night or every, you know, one night a week or something like that. Um, There's also some software, I haven't personally used it. So take this recommendation with a grain of salt that is specifically designed for syncing iTunes library called SuperSync. Um, So you may want to look that up as well.
0: I am the way I handle this problem is, is I do have iTunes match in essence. Well, now it's not called iTunes. Well, they still have iTunes match, but I'm using, um, Apple music, which also includes the iTunes match functionality, uh, for videos and TV. Um, the ones that I really like, because I still haven't given up on my large Dropbox account, I save those to Dropbox cloud. And what I mean by this, I sync it to Dropbox and then I disassociate it. You know, you can have limited sync in Dropbox. Um, are you with me? Yeah. So you like, I'll, I'll put a movie on my hard drive and it'll sync up to Dropbox and then I'll go in Dropbox and say, don't, you know, don't share the local copy on my Mac. And so whether I'm on my laptop or my iPad or my, or my big Mac, um, all of those are available in Dropbox's cloud. Now there's going to be a bandwidth cost, but if I, if I'm out, you know, out of town and I really, really want to watch a Ken Burns series. I can go ahead and download it and watch it on whatever device I want.
1: Josh wrote in and said, I hear both of you talk about scanning receipts and I believe a lot of what you say, but I can see many benefits to this, but I wanted to clarify that you still keep the actual receipt, right? In case this is something that you might return. Um, and you, uh, David, I, I want to get your opinion on this as well, but I typically don't unless I have an idea that this is something that I really might return. I mean, I, first off, I do a lot of online purchasing now, so those don't actually get scanned. They just get saved wherever they're going to go. But if I'm buying an actual receipt, I want to get that thing scanned as quickly as possible because have you noticed that they're using disappearing ink now on receipts?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I put that in the outline. The, um, I just bought some stuff, um, where I'm doing a, a little yard project right now. And the, um, I bought some stuff at home Depot like a week ago. And I, I went to scan the receipt and some of it was already illegible. They, they're, yeah. they're cheaping on the ink. So, and I, I talked on the show a couple of years ago where um, I had bought my wife a set of those wireless headphones. Cause she likes to watch TV late at night sometimes. And she would put those on and like eight months into the, um, And I wasn't sure about the manufacturer, so I actually kept the receipt. And eight months into it, they just failed. And I pulled out the receipt out of my file, and it was a a white piece of paper. There was no ink on it at all. And this wasn't something that had been rubbing around my pocket. It was sitting in a drawer. Um, So fortunately, I had scanned it, and I took it back to the store with a printout of the receipt and they they accepted it. And I've I've returned things multiple times based on printouts of scanned receipts. So um, the good news, John, is I haven't really had any problem with it. And and you probably want to scan those receipts because the receipts may not exist, even if you keep them after a short period of time.
1: Right. But I would say, obviously, check the store's policy. I know some stores say you must have your original receipt and they underline the word original. In that case, I'd, if it's something that I think I might return or if it's something that I think I might, I'm likely to have trouble with, I'll, I'll scan it immediately and then maybe save the receipt for a couple of weeks until I, ha- I have an idea that I'm outside of my return window. But generally, it hasn't been a problem.
0: Well, we've got a lot of feedback on the Mac based small business show, but maybe before we do that, we should take a minute to talk about a sponsor.
1: Yeah. You know, David, it's that time of year again. Uh, As we're recording this, we've got an Apple event coming up next week. If you're downloading this as a podcast, uh, you probably just heard that Apple-related event. Uh, And so what a great time to talk about Gazelle. If you're thinking about buying that new iPhone and possibly that new iPad that was uh, introduced at the Apple event, then you're probably going to want to sell your old device for cash. And Gazelle makes that easy. Uh, Shipping is free. Payment is fast. You answer a few simple questions. Online, You're going to get an offer in minutes and you can find out what your iPhone is worth right now. In fact, for those of you who are listening to our show live, uh, you're even in a better position because the Apple event hasn't happened yet. You can go right now on Gazelle. Your item will never be worth more. Uh, you can get a quote. You'll lock in your quote for 30 days. Gazelle's going to honor that quote for 30 days. Um, and go ahead and lock it in. And then you've got 30 days to decide whether you want to go ahead and send your item in, figure out what the new fancy device is that's been offered, does it hover, Um, you know, is it going to help you levitate? What kind of things is it going to have? Is it going to have the new Force Touch? Are you going to turn it in or not? And then decide if you want to send it in Gazelle. They'll even send you this fancy box that they've custom designed. You throw your iPhone in it, you ship it off to them, and boom, you're going to get paid. Um, Gazelle even pays cash for broken iPhones. So once you accept their online offer, Gazelle's going to honor it for 30 days. Shipping is free for most items. They're even going to send you the box. They'll take care of wiping your device. Although if you do have Find My iPhone turned on, you are going to have to deactivate that before you send it in. Uh, And payments are very fast. I have used Gazelle. You can either get a check in the mail, they'll send you an Amazon gift card, um, or they'll direct deposit it into your PayPal account. And Gazelle has paid out over $200 million to its customers. So if you want to help fund your new iPhone or iPad uh, upgrade by getting a little bit of cash for your old one, uh, you can sell them the smart way at gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. It'll give you plenty of time to go look for your new one. Um, Gazelle offers great prices on their trade-ins. In fact, you should go check out some of their prices. If you've got an iPhone 5S, for example, on Verizon, I just checked that out before the show. Those are going for more than $150 um, on Gazelle. An iPhone 6, 16 gigabyte for AT&T is going for more than $300. So go check them out. You can get your risk-free offer, free shipping, free box. They'll lock it in for 30 days. If I'm not handing my iPhone down to another family member, Gazelle is what I use for selling my device because no hassles with any of those other services. I know that they're trustworthy and I just don't have to worry about it anymore. So head over to gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. And when you check out, make sure that you let them know that they were sent to, uh, you were sent to them by Mac Power users as that really helps the show. So thanks, Gazelle, for your kind support of the show.
0: New phones. Is this your year to get a new phone? I forget.
1: No, no, no. I'm on the I'm on the even number year, not the S year.
0: Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I'm going to get a big one or a little one, but I'm going to get a new one. Of course you are. So um. anyway, um. let's talk about Mac based small business feedback. First, we heard from Richard.
4: Hi, Katie and David. Thanks so much for the Mac power user show number 272 about Mac based small business It was a great listen. I want to add a few services to the list that I find invaluable in running my consulting business. We use FreshBooks for our time tracking and billing. It might not work for you lawyer types, but it is fantastic for what we do. We use Podio as our collaboration platform both internally and with clients, and that's podio.com if you want to check it out. We switched from QuickBooks to Zero for accounting about a year ago and have been very happy with it so far, and that is Xero.com if you want to check that one out. And finally, and potentially of most interest to your listeners, we use Zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R.com for a number of workflows and automations. It's kind of the if this, then that for business, or if you want to think of it as Hazel for automating web services. They support integration of more than 400 apps and services, and I know this service helps me automate tasks that used to take me hours per month to do manually. Couldn't live without that one. It also connects all of the above services I just mentioned. So those are my top four services for my consulting business. Hope you and your listeners find the recommendations useful. Thanks again for the show. I know Mac Power Users is a must-listen for me and so many others. Take care and keep up the great work.
0: Thanks, Richard. Um, We actually, I know for a fact some of the Zapier team are Mac Power Users listeners, and I hear from them on occasion. I've played with it, but... Uh, I haven't really dug in on it because I've kind of got my workflows built around if this then that. So I need to take another look at that. I think someday, uh, Katie, we need to go back to the web services show and and maybe just take a look at where Zapier and um and if this then that stack up because they're both changing so much all the time.
1: Yeah, I agree. I also have not used Zapier, but we've had so many Mac power users, listeners write in and tell us that we should. So we, yeah. we probably should.
0: The hang up is the monthly subscription. I mean, it's like how many you know how many places are you going to get monthly subscriptions? And um,
1: but you uh, know how many times have we said that we would pay for if this and that if they would up their game a little bit? So
0: I know, and uh, so. uh, you, you got to
1: put your money where your mouth is.
0: Yeah. So I'll, I'll take another look at it. And that may become a future show content. I didn't go into it in great detail with the small business show. And I got some some negative feedback from people saying, well, you, you don't have a good enough system to manage your finances. And that's a big problem. But the, I'm using a legal service. Uh, The the one I'm using is, is called Clio, but the, there's several of them out there, but it's kind of like a whole practice management and includes a bunch of that stuff like billing and, and tracking of finances and, and expenses and all that stuff. But it's, it's just so unimportant to everybody listening to the show, except a couple nerdy lawyers that I didn't get into great detail on that. But uh, if you're not you know, a lawyer and you don't need some of these specialized tools, I think there's a lot of really good time tracking solutions out there. And that kind of brings us to the feedback from Des. And he says he uses Billings Pro to transfer them to MoneyWorks. And he also emails them as PDFs to clients. And um, And he's been paperless for nearly three years, thanks to us, which is great. And he has a keyboard maestro macro that takes the selected PDFs, reads the client address from the hidden field to create a batch of emails and sends them manually. And he says Dr. Drang helped him with the script, and um, and which just underlies the strength of the Mac community. I'd agree with that. Um that kind of got me thinking well how what is my billing procedure so I have a like I said I have this cloud-based billing service that automatically does my billing as I track it and it's got a an app for my phone and my iPad so I track time all throughout the month at the end of the month when I do my billings um I the way I do it is it, it has on the Mac the ability to generate a PDF and when that PDF shows up in the downloads file I have um a hazel script that's always looking in there and it as soon as it sees it, um, it opens a file and it renames it and it saves it to the appropriate client billing folder. So I just download the file. It gets named, date stamped and saved to where it belongs. And then the next thing I do is in I open it in preview and I just click the little send to button, you know, where you can open and create a mail.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I have a text expander snippet and it goes in i go in the subject line and i write new bill that's the snippet n-e-w-b-i-l-l and then it types in you know sparks law september invoice and then it hits the tab key and it says dear and it inserts the name of the client because it's smart enough to do that and then it also has um some optional checkboxes in there and like for um for some clients and it says you know here's this month's bill blah 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 and then i've got three options one is um would you like me to send you a hard copy of this if you would please let me know and i only do that usually the first time because you know you don't do that every month because the client will just say yes please send me hard copy or no i don't need it then i never check that box again for them i have another checkbox that says um would you like me to copy this to somebody else you know um, you know, at, at your company, cause sometimes, you know, the president doesn't want to receive the bills. They wanted to go to the accounting person. And then I have a checkbox for some other wild card. I don't even remember what it is as I sit here. And then just like when we were speaking, um, um, with Matt last week, I have some open ended, um, large text fields in there. And I'll say like, I'll write about what, what we're going to do next month or, or what happened in the past month and just kind of personalize that email. And so I run that snippet and then I press the send button and it's done. And most of my clients actually don't want uh, snail mail copies of the bill. Since as as you send out by PDF, they're done. So I've, I've largely, um, largely automated that entire process. The, the one piece I could automate more is have it automatically open the email, but I like to manually look at it before I do that um, just to make sure everything is right. Um it's, it's amazing to me because when I was in a firm, you know, billing was like a two-day process. And with me now, it's like an hour and a half for like all of my clients because everything is just so automated. Was that a rabbit hole? I think I went down a rabbit hole there. Well,
1: I think you should. I, have you written about this up on Max Barkey? If no, so, I, think I we will. I will. You
0: should. I'll, I'll put yeah. a, you know, so I always wonder because sometimes it's a little bit too much of the law business stuff, but I think that probably could be useful. But it's to applicable
1: anybody. to so many different things. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway, so
1: we had a we had a bunch of feedback about virtual assistants, and so I've got two audio comments that I'm going to play back to back here. Um, the first one is from Tim, and the second one is from Ryan. So let's let's hear from Tim first.
6: Hey, David. Hey, Katie. This is Tim in Connecticut, just outside New York City. Wanted to audio comment on episode 272, MacBase small business. I run a small business um, that provides sales and marketing services to startup companies, and uh, a key part of what we provide for our clients revolves around research. And we've got a very established process that we that we do that we've been pretty successful with, but it is sort of time-consuming. So what we started doing was we hired two virtual assistants, one in Kenya and one in the Philippines to um, take advantage of a little bit of the Earth's rotation and time zone difference. And what we do is as we're doing our research here in the United States, um, we're grabbing URLs and, and various things with a keyboard maestro shortcut that we've set up. And that takes the URL, does some magic to it, drops it as a text file into a folder. Then we've got Hazel watching that folder and it can do some things, um, based on the contents and or name of the file. And then, um, We've got Dropbox folders set up, so depending on the nature of the task, Hazel will drop it into a specific folder, um, and those folders are accessible to our colleagues both in Kenya and in the Philippines. We're also tied together with Google Docs and um, Salesforce.com, which is an online database. But the nice thing is that you know, no, rather than us have to do this. 100% of the process, we can kind of get the process kicked off, uh, go to bed. And then when we wake up in the morning, people have been working on it all night and the process is done. And then we can kind of start with the next process or reach out to our clients and tell them what we found, et cetera. Anyway, I wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, love your show. Keep up the great work and look forward to all your future episodes. Take care. Bye.
0: Do you want to talk about that or play Ryan's now?
1: Well, let's go ahead and play Ryan's. So then we can talk about them both together.
7: All right. Hello, Katie and David. This is Ryan Gray from the Medical School Headquarters podcast. And in a recent episode that you guys did about David and and uh, him going solo with this practice, uh, episode 272, you guys talked about virtual assistants. And I've used a virtual assistant now for the better part of two plus years. Uh, I was a practicing physician and... Running my medical school headquarters podcast and website and business kind of on the side. And like David, I recently left uh, full time practice and am working on my podcast and business now full time. But the first thing that that popped into my mind was the fact that I always hear you talk about people that do your show notes. And it sounds like maybe listeners or somebody that does your show notes. And and those are virtual assistants for you. And I've come to rely on virtual assistants now. to do my editing of my podcasts uh i'll um i'll record the intro outro separate from an interview the editor will put them all together upload them to my uh podcast hosting service create the post in wordpress for me make it all go live upload it to soundcloud do whatever else i need to do somebody else does the show notes uh just like you guys do so virtual assistants are amazing. I've used them to create long lists of admissions committee members or deans of medical schools, any sort of kind of tedious work that is pretty easy to to hand off to somebody else. So that's my experience with a virtual assistant. Uh, very easy to look into places like uh, Odesk or Elance or whatever it's called now. Um, yeah, highly recommend. Thanks, guys.
0: Well, I I am still, um, very interested in this topic and I haven't hired a virtual assistant yet, but I, I, I probably need to, because I, between the max Sparky stuff and the law practice stuff, I'm, you know, at capacity now. And so what I've done is I've opened a text list, you know, that's what everything in my life starts with a text list, you know? So every time I'm bumping into something that, um, somebody i could you know theoretically offload i'm writing it down and i'm starting to make a list of the types of things that maybe i'd like to offload and um i haven't hired anybody yet and i haven't i haven't got any experience with it but it's going to happen at some point and and i'll report back but but it's again it's a thing where you kind of have to go at this mindfully i don't think you just go hire somebody and just throw a bunch of stuff at them you know, you've got to have a system. And and frankly, I want to be the face of both Max Barkey and my practice. So I don't want some other person answering email for me or anything like that. But um, there has to be um, a way for me to to relieve some of the pressure by, by bringing in a virtual person.
1: Well, actually, David, you have hired virtual assistants before, and I didn't realize this until Ryan brought it to our attention. But we do have someone who edits our podcast for us. You know, Mark Mark Miles does that for us. Um, And, you know, JT and Hay have done show notes for us. Um, And because we just realized that offloading those things, you know, it was just getting to be too much. You know, it was all day Saturday morning or Sunday morning to edit the the podcast. And it was, um, you know, another couple of hours to do the show notes in addition to all of the other prep we do. So we have started slowly branching out into virtual assistants a little bit, at least with the production of Mac, Mac Power users. You know, so it is another thing to step out and see, okay, well, how, how else can we take this? I don't, I don't know where you would find a virtual assistant, um, whether there are online services. I, I would love to talk to someone who is a virtual assistant, maybe for a future Mac Power users live show. Um, so if you are out there and you are a virtual assistant and would like to share how you work and how that process works, you know, please feel free to get in touch with
0: us. Yeah, there's a lot of services available on the internet and, and some of them are international, which can work for you, especially like if you have someone on the other side of the world and you hand them off a project and go to bed and you wake up and it's done, that's pretty nice. Um, so, so we'll see, but the, um, I'm definitely not adverse to this. I just have to figure out how to do it mindfully. And I haven't done that yet. And and so the starting point for me is just kind of making a list of the types of things that I might offload and figuring out how I could do that sanely. Um, uh, we also heard though uh, uh, another subject was I talked I mentioned mail tags and I'm using mail tags a lot more and was it Katie who had written in to ask can David explain his mail tags workflow and how he sets things up does he use keywords or project tags and how does this integrate with with Sanebox um, so.
1: And just so you know, David, listener Katie, that would be me.
0: Oh, is that Katie Floyd? That's Katie Floyd. <laughs> I didn't know.
1: That's uh, how I can get you know, I have to write into the show to get a hold
0: of you now. Well, okay. <laughs> you're so busy these days. But but you're in, so that's all that matters, right? Um so uh so what I do is um I've got I, I am not a fan of of the, you know, million folders and a lot of law practices do that. They have a folder for every legal matter and every email related to it gets copied into there which becomes just a whole mess because you got to get it copied into it. Then all of a sudden your, um, your folder list becomes super populated. It becomes very easily to accidentally drag an email to the wrong folder. And the amount of time you use doing that is, you know, it just adds up and it doesn't seem to make sense to me. And since I'm the boss and broom sweeper here, I got to make my own decisions and I've always been a fan of mail tags, but I also always said, "Well, I'm not sure if it's worth it to me to tag every email because I'm not—I don't search tags that often—and the searches and the mail programs are so good now." But what I would like is the ability to have every email related to a specific litigation or transactional matter in one place—the ability to see them all together. And it seems like mail tags is perfect for that. So I—I've been using mail tags. Um, I use primarily project tags you know they have if you open up mail tags there's a whole bunch of things you can do you can do keywords and they have a whole bunch of different criteria you can use but one of them is projects so i have a list of projects and i only do this with my legal stuff the max barkey stuff still doesn't need this treatment and um so if a I have a Smith v. Jones case and I get an email from a vendor saying, hey, uh, here's the receipt for filing at the court. I give it the uh, Smith v. Jones project tag. If it's an email from opposing counsel, it gets the project tag. And all this takes one click on the mouse and then just a couple keyboard. Strokes and so it's it's not prohibitive in terms of my time in tagging these emails. Um, And
1: what is a project tag versus a keyword tag?
0: Well, a keyword to me, um, I I guess it's all up to the user, really. Um, A keyword can be like you know kumquats or you know you know uh, vegetables or whatever. You a keyword can be anything. Whereas a project to me is these emails all are on this one project. Does that make sense? I mean, you could so do you, you could,
1: do you use keywords at all or do you no, only use
0: projects? I don't use keywords. I just use projects. And but but I've got this nice list of projects for all my client matters. And and you can have it show them or you can have it not show them. But I have it show all the active ones. And it just opens up a list. And if you t- type a couple of keys like SM, it'll jump down to Smith v. Jones and hit return and you've tagged it. And so that's how I am. Um, that's how I do it. Um, the downside of the, so the upside is I can go in and search for the Smithy Jones and get all the emails. Uh, there's a couple downsides. One is there's no iOS component, so I cannot actually project tag it on my iPhone or iPad because there's just no way to do it. Um, uh, I haven't investigated this, but I haven't even tried to search the project tags on the iPhone and iPad, but I assume that I wouldn't see them either. But that may not be true. They may be searchable on the iPhone or iPad, but I can't tag them. So all this has to happen on the Mac. Um, it doesn't integrate with SaneBox at all. I mean, SaneBox is just manages the email coming in in terms of tagging on it. It doesn't do it. And SaneBox doesn't I don't even think SaneBox sees the tags and it doesn't mean anything to SaneBox. Um, my, so, my
1: problem was when I put something into my sane Later folder, I was automatically getting the keyword sane Later. Really? When I was using yeah, mail text. So I was having to create rules to take those keywords off. I maybe don't. That's because I was using keywords instead of projects.
0: Yeah, I, I don't. I haven't experienced that. And um, it, it. so using projects for this, it's it's a really simple, small workflow. It's not a big deal, but it solves the problem of letting me see all the email related to something or easily accumulated. Another thing you can do that's kind of nice is um those Project tags and also basically all the mail tags metadata is searchable in mail. And it's also you can make smart folders with it. So I can make a a mail smart folder that says, you know, give me all the email related to the Smith v. Jones. And if I'm really active on one matter for a couple of weeks, I might make a temporary smart folder so I can just click on it and see all that mail. Um, But I don't have to have that permanent folder structure.
1: Yeah. I really like the idea of mail tags a lot. I'm I'm in my 30 day trial right now, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up picking it up, but I'm still struggling a little bit with with keywords versus projects. And I think maybe that's where I'm struggling is I'm using keywords instead of projects. So I'm going to try setting up and I've only done it with a couple of cases so far. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that hard to switch over to yeah. using projects instead of keywords.
0: Yes, um, that that um, that feature where you type in a um a couple letters and it searches the project list so you can jump to it without having to scroll with the mouse i think that is just in the beta for the um 10.11 i actually wrote the developer and requested it i think that's a new feature i'm not sure it works in the uh the currently shipping version so if you're running into a problem with that just stay tuned you'll get that soon Um, okay. Well, listen, uh, emergency preparedness also brought a lot of feedback. I I, actually, let me back up before we move on that whole episode on the Mac based small business. I also got a bunch of email from people just congratulating me on pulling this off and telling me their stories about how they did something like this. Thank you everybody for that. All that stuff makes me feel warm and fuzzy and it, it really makes a difference in my life. So thanks for all the warm wishes. Um, but before we get onto emergency preparedness, uh, let me take a minute to talk about our sponsor over at the Omni group and in particular and in particular i want to talk about an omnifocus application that doesn't get a whole lot of airtime here on the mac power users and that is the project planning software a lot of people are using omnifocus but omniplan we we don't talk about it too much and um omniplan is is a project planning software. You know, it's something like where you can set up an entire soup to nuts, build a bridge type of project, but it doesn't have to be that big. It could also just be building a flower box in your backyard. Um, but the, the thing is, there's a lot of project planning software and it's always been historically very difficult to grok. I mean, this stuff is just complicated and the software was made in ways that you have to go take a three day course before you could use it. And let's take the concept of project planning and then say let's take a company like omni group and sit them on this task and you get exactly what you expect you get a program that not only is a powerful project planner but doesn't require you to take a three-day course in order to use it um, omni plan allows you to visualize a project with the best looking screen in the business it's got a Gantt view, you know, where you can see the the projects line up, which is both beautiful and functional. And it allows you to see the project. It, it works on both iOS and on the Mac. So you can move the data back and forth. And it's not that difficult to use. And the way I've been using it is it, it really two ways. One is actual project planning. When I've got a very, you know, a complicated project that I want to kind of start lining up the assets and figuring out how I'm going to pull it off, I will make myself an OmniPlan for it. The other way I use it is kind of a marketing thing where like when I'm doing something for a client and it's complicated and it's got multiple steps, these Gantt charts are a really great way to communicate with a client or a customer all the things you're going to be doing on their behalf. And it gives them a a timeline, you know, now make sure it's a timeline you can live with because once you send it off to them, they're going to hold you to it, but it's not that difficult to make these. And so I do that quite often with clients. When I've got a complicated project, that's going to take several months. I create a plan and I send them the PDF of that plan. They don't have to have OmniPlan, OmniPlan exports to just about any format you want, including PDF. And they love getting it. It allows them to see exactly what's going on. And that, you know, that visual representation of the work is something that that really can make a difference for them to appreciate when they get your bill, what you're all doing, and also just get a better idea of, of, um, you know, the time involved. Um, You can track the types of assets you're going to use. You can track dates. If things move, it can adjust automatically. All the things that you would want from a good project planning tool are here, but they just look beautiful and they're easy to use. And lastly, you can synchronize it. So if you make it on your iPad, you can sync it over to your Mac, your iPhone using the OmniSync server service. So this is really a great and powerful tool for that type of work. If you are working on complicated projects, uh, this is something you may want to take a look at. I use it all the time. I think I'm going to do a screencast on it at some point because I think a lot of people have a hard time just kind of figuring out how this works. But once you dig in with this, you'll find out it's just so easy to use that it's probably something you can use. Um, with all the other Omni stuff, there's a free trial period. So if you go on their website, you can download it for a free trial period and, and learn for yourself. They, they still have that great 30-day return policy if it doesn't work for you. Uh, OmniPlan is a powerful tool. It's something that I think a lot more people can use than realize. And um, and we're really proud to have OmniGroup as a sponsor. And I'd encourage you to go check it out. Thanks, OmniGroup, for sponsoring the show. And everybody go take a look at OmniPlan.
1: So we got a good bit of feedback about our emergency preparedness episode. And David, I was afraid that I was going to have to use this because we had uh, Hurricane Erica that was heading right for my area uh, and then thankfully a couple of days before it just steamed out i don't know what happened it just kind of disintegrated over cuba so thank that was very thankful that we ended up not having to uh you know experience the hurricane but it's always good to be prepared so always something you may want to go back and take a look at uh but chris wrote in with a couple of uh Excellent points. And he said that I must dissuade you of the notion um, that you'll have adequate warning before a wildfire or hurricane. He says, here's a great case in point. A friend of mine, coincidentally, who is also an attorney, lived with his wife in Oakland Hills when the firestorm struck. He was on a business trip and she was shopping safely in a distant mall. When she picked him up at the San Francisco airport, all of their worldly goods had been uh, destroyed and all they had left was the car that she had taken shopping, the clothes on their backs and the contents from his trip and whatever she had bought at the mall that day. So keep in mind that in true Murphy style, you know, Murphy's law, that disaster could strike while the Sparks family is splashing in the Hawaiian surf or Katie is rafting down the the Colorado River. Uh, he says on an entirely related, uh, so it's good to have all as much stuff digital as soon as possible uh, as you possibly can. He says on a related topic, we've both talked about having battery and solar options available in case of an emergency. But what about a dark and stormy night uh, where you have dead batteries? And he recommends the BioLite camping stove. And I've put a link to that in the show notes, uh, which you can light up the stove um, using whatever campfire material is at hand. um, And you have both heat and electricity that you can use to charge USB devices. So interesting.
0: Yeah, um, those are all good points. I I saw the when we had the wildfire here that year, I saw it move like a mile very quickly. It, It is amazing how powerful a force of nature can be. Um, Cardigan wrote in and said, don't forget about Google Interactive Account Manager. If your account becomes inactive for a set period of time, like four or nine months, uh, Gmail can send any pre-written letter to any contact you designate, like a uh, like a dead man switch or a final farewell email. Um, well, that's something I'm, I'm not sure I'd want to use that, but, uh, but, uh, there, it, it, is. it could
1: just be, you decided to switch email accounts and then yeah. all of a sudden your loved <laughs> ones get a, I'm dead letter. <laughs>
0: um, but anyway, that, that's something those guys in Google are always coming up with interesting ideas if nothing else. Um, uh, he said, write down a list of step by step, uh, for your emergency plan. What if I lose my house safe wallet, you know, and, and do you have all the important passwords memorized and what do you do with your second factor and where's the backup of the second factor stuff located? I think that's a really good idea. To just go through that mental exercise because, um, you know, like we did that here. Um, I had my, my 14 uh, year old kind of working on our disaster plan and she says, how are we going to get out of the second floor windows? And she's right. <laughs> you know, so we bought some of those chain ladders that we can throw out the window if there's some reason, um, uh, and then he says, "How exactly do you stand up a new computer from cloud storage? Do a dry run of your cloud recovery on a spare computer, or verify the and authenticate uh, on a new computer?" Um, the dry run made him ask these questions, and he didn't know, so he needed to ask. So, how would you deal with that, Katie? Um, checking out your cloud storage.
1: Yeah, you know it is something to think about because these these things do happen. Um, and not even in disasters. I guess even personal little disasters. You know, what what if you're traveling and you drop your iPhone in a puddle and the screen cracks and all of your data on your iPhone is gone and you walk into an Apple store because you've got Apple Care Plus and they replace it for you. How do you get all of your data back on? You know, do you know what your passwords are if you just walk in cold and you don't have any other devices that you can restore from? You know, what it, you know, walk through the Matt Hahn type situation. If that happened to you, would you be able to get your data back? You know, do you have backup copies of your data that you can get access to that either aren't encrypted or that you have a way that you know that you can unencrypt? So I think it is good to walk through what is the worst case scenario and actually step by step walk through it. Where are your roadblocks? Where are your barriers? Um, and Stan Stan has a good idea that will walk us through this. Um, and, and he said, one thing that we didn't talk about is create a checklist. And as you're walking through these things, you can create a checklist. Stan's a, a pilot, and he says he lives by checklists. Um, so that's always something that you can do.
0: Yeah, and Stan mentioned the uh, Gawande book, The Checklist Manifesto. That has been floating around my OmniFocus for years. I, like every four months, it comes up, you know, read this book and do something about it. I just never have the time, but... One of these days, I'm going to become a checklist guy. Um, listen, we are, we are running long and we've got a lot of great feedback here. I think we're going to, have to put some off. Um, what do you think?
1: Well, th- that's a good thing. We've got a lot of it coming, but that's OK, because you know what? There'll be another Mac Power Users Live next month, David.
0: There will, won't there? Um, but I, I do want to talk about um, what do you think you want to talk about the listener workflow tips or stuff we're playing with?
1: I think we should talk about both. I think we have time. We can talk about both of our listener workflow tips and stuff that we're playing. All
0: right, let's do that. Uh, You want to start with Joel?
1: Well, but before we do, I I do still have one last sponsor that we need to talk about. Um, And that is our good friends over at Fujitsu. And I think it is timely this episode. Um, Because we were talking about uh, document scanning and scanning receipts, maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the small portable scanner, the iX100. Because um, if you're going to be doing um, scanning on the go, or if you've got little documents that you want to scan, the iX100 from Fujitsu is just the ultimate in portable scanning. Uh, It can scan a page at 300 dpi in as little as 5.2 seconds, but yet it's small enough that it will fit in a glove box, a briefcase, or a backpack, and it weighs only 14 ounces. This tiny little scanner, and they even make a cute little carrying case for it, uh, is USB-powered. And it now comes, the new iX100, with wireless scanning capabilities. So you can plug it in directly via USB to a Mac or a PC, but it also has the ability to scan directly to iOS, to Android, to Kindle Fire, um, or to a number of other mobile devices. Uh, It's got a rechargeable battery that will scan up to 260 pages on the go. So you just drop this thing in your backpack or your briefcase or wherever you happen to go. Um, plug it in or connect it wirelessly to your iOS device and just start scanning. Um, But what really makes this thing tick is it's got amazing software. Um, You can scan, it's got dual scan technology that will allow you to scan two two small documents at the same time. So you can double your your bang for your buck Um, or documents that are larger than legal size can easily be scanned and then automatically stitched together with the great ScanSnap software. Um, And of course, ScanSnap software Allows you to OCR a PDF, scan to a folder, to email, or scan to all kinds of third-party apps like Evernote and Dropbox. So if you want the ultimate in portability, check out the iX100. Um, or if you want to upgrade into something with a little more power, check out the S1300i, which is their... Um, I would say it's it's about the sh- uh, small sh- uh, size, uh, drawer size scanner. It's portable. It will scan up to 12 pages a minute, uh, two sizes, but still portable enough that you could take it on a trip with you. And if you want the ultimate super powerhouse scanner, uh, you can check out the iX500 that includes a 50 uh, sheet feeder. USB 3.0 will scan up to 25 pages per minute, um, either wirelessly direct to your mobile devices or direct connected to your Mac. Uh it is just the ultimate power uh scanning machine. So you can check out the entire line of ScanSnap devices over at easy.com slash SSMPU. That stands for ScanSnap NPU. Um and so you can uh check them all out and let them know that uh their support of the show, uh how much you appreciate them and we appreciate them. Uh so thanks so much to Fujitsu for their kind support of Mac Power users.
0: Okay, so let's hear from Joel about Text Expander and Dragon Dictate.
5: Hi, David and Katie. I don't know if this is too much of an edge case, but for those of us who use both Text Expander and Dragon Dictate for Mac, I'm looking at you, David, this may be a bit of help. I've been using dictation software from Dragon for years. I've had really good experiences with Dragon Dictate for Mac 4, and I'm planning to install the new version 5 when I do a fresh install of El Capitan. But one of my frequent frustrations has been that every once in a while the cursor jumps around at random moments and adds letters to the ends of lines. I've recently discovered that this can be caused by conflict between Dragon Dictate and Text Expander. Dragon recommends disabling Text Expander, but since I'm constantly switching back and forth between dictating and typing, that's just, just gonna, not going to happen. And there's no way I'm going to remember to keep enabling Text Expander again. But then I realized that I almost never need Text Expander when I'm actually dictating, that is, when the microphone is turned on. And that led me to the following workaround. Basically, what I needed to do was to make sure that whenever Dragon Dictate was in Microphone On mode, Text Expander was just disabled. And that as soon as I turned off the dictation microphone, Text Expander gets re enabled. And you can do that by creating. A keyboard shortcut that fires off two other shortcuts in the preferences for Text Expander. You can easily set up a keyboard shortcut that enables or disables Text Expander, and in Dragon Dictate, you can set up a keyboard shortcut to toggle the microphone on or off. So what I've done is to set up a keyboard shortcut using Keyboard Maestro, but you can use Launch Bar or Quicksilver as well, so that every time I use the keyboard shortcut to turn the microphone on, it automatically also disables Text Expander. And then when I use the keyboard shortcut to turn the microphone off, Text Expander is re-enabled. Of course, this doesn't work if you use voice commands to turn the microphone off and on. But I prefer to toggle dictation mode with the keyboard anyway. Anyway, hope that's helpful. One more thing. Thanks for the great shows, especially given all you guys have been dealing with. Um, you're both really class acts. And David, your recent blog post uh, was a shining example of how to be a mensch. You're an inspiration. All the best.
0: Well, thanks, Joel. I appreciate that. Um, and that was a really good tip. I, you know, I haven't had that problem too often with the, the jumping cursor in Dragon Dictate, but I'm very careful about when I use Dragon Dictate, you know, largely it's a byword file that I open, kind of keep it simple and I dictate in there and I dictate a lot of stuff and then I turn off it. But but like Joel, I use a keyboard shortcut to turn the mic off and on. I don't do it with my voice. And this is something that... um. It just really makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go ahead and set it up.
1: We also got in a, uh, a tip from Justin and I had no, uh, especially given my recent MacBook woes, this, this could have come in handy. So here's Justin.
8: Hi, this is Justin from Virginia with a pro tip for when you buy a new Apple product. If you buy your product with an American Express card, they will extend your warranty by a year. You don't have to do anything. You just use your Amex at purchase and you get an automatic one year uh, warranty extension. Now, the more interesting thing is if even if you buy AppleCare, they'll still extend your warranty by a year, which would give you four years on a laptop or three years on a phone. Now, this isn't the same thing as AppleCare. You'll still have to get a quote for Apple for the repair. You'll have to then work with Amex to get reimbursed for your out-of-pocket costs, etc., but it's still a great perk. Now, most cards offer purchase protection, but generally not on purchased extended warranties, only on the original manufacturer's warranty. Um, So be sure to read the fine print if you're using a non-Amex card. And uh, the the other thing is that Amex customer service is reported to just be excellent to work with. Um, So there's that advantage as well. Um, When I heard about this perk a couple of months ago, I went and got got my first American Express card. So I haven't done it yet myself as I'm a new card owner, but I can confirm that the fine print in the agreement indicates that this is indeed how it works. And uh, people on Reddit claim to have had success doing this. So give it a shot. Thanks.
0: Well, I, I could see myself getting an Amex card. Yeah,
1: this this made me think twice about getting an Amex card as well. I, I tell you, I'm really not a fan of credit cards. I just, I think they're kind of dangerous. They're like playing with fire a little bit. I, they may be a necessity of life, but I, I would just caution people to, to check out the specifics of their card and the fine print themselves. You know, don't just rely on somebody told you something on a podcast or somebody on Reddit said something, you know, you just want to be very careful and check out all the details yourself. But this is a good good thing to know about.
0: And we also heard from Bruce about syncing contacts.
9: This is Bruce from Tennessee with an audio note about dealing with contacts. First, congrats to both Katie and David on their career moves. I hope they work out for you. Thanks too for all that you've done for the community, and I hope this is a useful contribution. I have a need to keep contacts synced across multiple platforms, including iCloud, Exchange, and Gmail. In my work environment, we use Exchange, and I need my contacts up to date there for a variety of reasons. Those reasons include the separate mobile app we use for work email, occasional use of Outlook webmail, and sharing my contacts with support staff. Personally, I use the iOS and OS 10 mail apps for most of my personal mail, but occasionally need to get into the Gmail web interface, such as when accessing my personal email from work. So I need my contacts up to date in Gmail. And to make the most of Siri and the other Mac tools, it works best to take advantage of the features, having my contacts natively in iCloud. But syncing across all these is a pain and not reliable in the long term. My solution? iCloud is the master, and I periodically do a one-way nuke and pave from iCloud to the other two. It's an every two week recurring reminder for me in Omnifocus, and I'll do a special run if I've made a bunch of changes in my contacts. On one Windows computer at work, I've installed Apple's iCloud for Windows. And on one of my home Macs, I've installed Contact Sync for Google Gmail by Playa Apps from the Mac App Store. For Exchange, I go into Outlook on that Windows computer at work, delete all of the contacts in the Exchange server, and then copy and paste from iCloud. It takes a few seconds. For Google, I go into Gmail's web interface, delete all of the contacts there, and then run a one-way sync using that Google Contact Sync app. I've been doing this now for about three years, and this has done what I need to ensure that my contacts are consistent across all three places where I need them. I have a complete copy of my contacts someplace that's out of reach from work, and I don't deal with all of the corruption that was regularly coming up when I tried various sync solutions. Thanks much, and I hope folks find this useful.
0: Well, thanks, Bruce, for sharing that. It's kind of sad that in 2015 you still have to jump through all these hoops for managing your contacts, but it sounds like he got it figured out.
1: Yeah, and this is actually the solution. I used the iOS app because I think at the time that I downloaded this, they didn't have a Mac app. Uh, I would have preferred to use the Mac app, but this was actually the solution that I used as well for keeping um, some of my work contacts in sync and my personal contacts in sync with Mac Power users, Gmail and things like that. So yeah, I I, I like this solution as well. All right. Uh, and I think we'll wrap it up today, David, with um, what fun things are are we using?
0: The, um, I've got one. And, um, you know, Mike Hurley's been talking a lot about his mouse lately. You know, there's something yeah, going on in Relay heard. about. The, I was I guessed it on Connected. And, and I explained that I use a keyboard and a, a Magic Trackpad and I'm fine. And Mike started. I think he explained that he had six or seven or maybe it was 12 different input devices. I don't know. I lost track, you know, but, he, but he's got, you know. Many, the, many,
1: you know, many, the, many, the, many, and,
0: many, and And I was kind of giving him a hard time. Like I used to give you a hard time when you told me how you have the mouse on the left side. Was it the mouse on the right side, the trackpad on the left side, and then the keyboard in the middle, which makes perfect yes, sense. M- m- but, mouse on the right. Yeah, but it makes perfect sense, but I was making fun of you anyway for it. And But so anyway, I said, well, what am I missing here? So, so Mike is really talking up the new Logitech MX Master Mouse, um, so I went and got one, and I've been using it three days, and I'm I'm probably going to end up taking it back because it it just doesn't add wait, wait. up.
1: T- take, taking it back is in you don't like it.
0: Well, it's a great. You're the mouse. only one
1: I've heard who doesn't like it.
0: It's a great mouse, but I just don't. I'm good with the trackpad. I just don't know that I need a mouse. So. Anyway, like like there's some there's a bunch of extra buttons on it, which is really cool. And you can do really cool things. It's but I, you know, I use better touch tool and I've got kind of like a shorthand with my hands on the uh, magic trackpad that does most of that stuff. I don't know. I'm going to give it another few days. I've got two weeks. So uh, but it's not really um, grabbing me the way it's grabbing everybody else.
1: Yeah, I I've got some RSI issues, and I almost always prefer a mouse to a trackpad. Um, and even certain mice give me more trouble than other mice. So I've I've got that mouse on my Amazon wish list. Hopefully, someone will pick it up for me for Christmas. I'm currently using the Logitech Performance MX mouse, which I think has a similar um, is is the predecessor to that particular mouse. Um, but your mouse certainly has a lot more bells and whistles than my mouse. So I, I want a new mouse.
0: Yeah. Speaking of Christmas lists, have you been watching this? All this new Star Wars toys came out this week. You do, you, know?
1: do you have a BB-8 yet?
0: OK, so so there's there is a little remote. It's a Sphero. You know, the, all the geeks may know Sphero is the company that made the remote control ball that works with your phone. Well, they yeah. they made a BB-8 droid like Sphero. And I saw it and I said to my wife, I said, you know, that would be a really good Christmas present for me. So I sent her all the links and um she told me she says if I get that for you I'm not going to wait for Christmas. Isn't she the best wife ever?
1: Have you got it yet?
0: No, I don't have one. I don't I, I don't know what she's doing. Maybe she'll get me one. I don't know. But the uh I think it would be fun to have a little droid patrolling my house. What It is the droid the, what, you're looking for? What's the silent judgment?
1: <laughs> no, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> i just i am not at all surprised as soon as as soon as i saw it i was like yep
0: yeah oh you know what else yes. i'm doing is um um i i've got a um i'm bu- i'm building a lego set i have um a lego set yeah in my outdoor area i have a little um fish pond and I've had I keep putting plants there and they keep dying because it's where it's located and the water situation it's not very good. So I bought a used Lego set of an X-wing and I'm gonna have a crashed X-wing in my uh, backyard now. I'm going the full Lego Land treatment. Okay, but I still have All to right. figure out, I still have to figure out how to put together in a way where the Legos don't fall apart. I want to like glue them together or something. So anyway, I guess that's enough of that. What are you playing with, Katie Floyd?
1: Well, nothing as fancy as your little BB-8, but I guess you don't have yours yet. Um, I'm I'm playing with the, and, and I don't know that this is the correct pronunciation, but the Spidgen um, watch stand for iOS. Uh, and I've got a link to that in the show notes. But I, I heard about this from our friend Jeff Richardson on iPhone JD, and he actually was a guest on the show a couple of months ago. And I have been interested in Apple watch stands but I was kind of glad that I didn't buy one because most of the Apple Watch stands ended up holding the Apple Watch in a vertical position and now it's got this cool horizontal nightstand mode. But I also really didn't want to spend 30, 40, 50 bucks on an Apple Watch stand. So what I had been doing is I just kind of kept it in this um, you know, in this little tray by my bed, but it was big. So um this is a much smaller, much more minimalistic solution. And it's it's really just kind of a, a piece of formed. I I don't know, rubber, but it's not bad looking. And when you put the Apple watch on it, you really can't see the stand at all. And it's 11 bucks. It's an $11 Apple watch stand that will sit on your dresser, your nightstand or whatever. Uh, It holds the Apple watch charger. It will charge the phone. It will hold it in nightstand mode. And like I said, you really don't see the stand. The stand gets basically mostly covered up when you put the Apple watch on it. So it works. And for 11 bucks, I was happy, happy to do that.
0: Yeah, Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I don't, I haven't really got interested in stands yet. I, I just put, I, I reattached the loop and set it on its side and that's fine.
1: Yeah. I'm a little worried cause I've got a, um, I'm worried that it's going to scratch the surface of my nightstand.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you get the stainless steel one, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. well, anyway, um, so we made it to the end of another live show. Um, We actually have some for those of you, there's some audio comments we're going to get into the next show that didn't make into this one. But we would like your audio comments because we know you listening out there have some ideas, some thoughts on some of the things we've been doing or some of the shows we've done. Uh, Please send them in to us. We would really appreciate it. Keep it short. You know, two minutes or less is really great. Uh, Send it to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. You could go uh, full crazy, like uh, like we we're talking with Victor and buy an expensive mic. Like if you want to buy a, a Heil mic to do that recording, that would be fine with us. But you could also just turn on the uh, what's the app called? Is it recorder?
1: The voice recorder app. Voice on, recorder. On the phone.
0: Yeah. You could just do that and talk into that. That'd be fine, too. And you can email it to us right from inside the application. Uh, we do these live shows the first Saturday of every month, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. And um, please get it in. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Yeah. And if you're going to do that, that voice recorder app route, um, you know, you can use the voice recorder app, try to keep it to two minutes or less for your audio comments and just try to record it in a nice quiet place and uh, email it to us. That would be great. Um, so thanks again to our great sponsors for this episode. Uh, Sparkle, Gazelle, Omni and Fujitsu. Remember that your support of them helps support us. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes at relay.fm MPU 277. And we will talk to you all next time.